Business News Power Hour. Welcome to the Business News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's the 22nd of September, this Wednesday. I'm Stuart Lohman, coming to you from the Johannesburg studio. With me, I've got Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat. On the show today, Bronwyn Nielsen chats to Magnus Haystack. He touches on Bitcoin and everything else that's going on in the markets. He's not a big keen of the crypto, but he'll let you in on more of the other opportunities he sees, as well as the Evergrande story. We also chat to Arthur's Liz McDade. She looks at the nuclear deal, and Arthur's very concerned that this is there's a bit of secrecy around it, and there's not much information being given to the public. So she brings us up to speed on that front. She also looks at the generation licenses that were given to the car power ships, which is obviously also shrouded in a bit of um, uncertainty. Our partners at the Financial Times give us some insight on Uber, which looks to be looks like it will produce its first quarter of profits. Justin, I'm not sure if you follow Uber at all, but it's been around for a while, and this is the first time they're expecting to see green. I don't follow it too closely, stupid. Very interesting business model with a big runway. Uh, you got the food delivery side. You've obviously got the taxi industry side. And it's just one of those big growth companies where they put so much money in that profits haven't been able to generate just as a result of all the capex into the business. But now they're obviously bearing fruit and it's good to see them going into profit. They are, they are uh, touted as one of the next big technology businesses um, to come out of this pandemic. And you also chat to the CFO from Remgro in the show later, Neville Williamson. Yes, Neville Williams. Very uh, interesting conversation. Uh, we chat mainly on the unlisted investments within the Remgro stable. Of course, we know about Distal, MediClinic, RCL Foods, etc. Um, we chat about CIVH and Vimital and um, just their drive from traditional banking into the technology sectors. Excellent. And my colleague in London, Linda von Tilburg, chats to architect Sumai Vala, who's doing some good stuff in the city of London. Uh, just to look at what's running on the dot-com, we've got a column from Dr. Tami Madzwai. Uh, we ran a piece from the Financial Times on the basic income grant, and he sort of basically says, if we go this way, it's going to push the country into ICU. Um, yesterday, we chatted to Exemplar MD Jason McCormick, and that quotes piece is running very well on the site. And then Justin's interview with Francois Nokia has also been well, well read on biznews.com. Nads, I know we're back into full swing on YouTube. How are things that side? We are properly back into full swing. So sort of similar themes. Justin's interview from yesterday with Francois Nokia is doing really well. Just as far as I understand it, he was just expressing his frustration that the NIP 2050 actually just makes provision for Transnet. And then another interview that's uh, being really well watched is the summary of the interview about British-American tobacco's corruption scandal. And the third video is the Great Steinhoff debate between Pitfulyun and Bernard Mostert, a colleague of which made a 10-minute, and that's really Package. good. Justin, I know yeah. you enjoyed that debate <laughs> with Pitt and uh, Bernard. It was an awesome debate. Obviously, you got Bernard from the entrepreneurial side and then Pitt, a businessman himself, yet also a fund manager. They're just different merits that you've got to look out for in the both. So as, as in building a business versus investing, they're two different concepts and they really outline that perfectly well. And uh, yeah, it was nice to see Pitt 
and burnout, although they had two contrasting opinions on it. Um, it was a gentleman's debate, which is good to see. Yeah, agreed on that side. Just on the podcast front, the Rob Hersoff piece from the conference has still been very well listened to. The interview with Stephen Nathan last night, uh, focusing around Evergrande, and then last night's Biz News Power Hour also in the top three. Uh, let's check in on the markets and news. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. South Africa's High Court struck down some changes to mining regulations that govern black ownership targets in a move that could potentially revive investor interest in the sector. In 2018, Mines Minister Gwede Mantashe adjusted the rules to stipulate that an ownership target of 26% for black investors in South African mining companies would remain in perpetuity. So miners that had previously met the threshold would need to find new black shareholders if the original ones exited their holdings. The challenge, the challenged clauses of the 2018 charter are unconstitutional as the minister does not have the power to make law, according to a ruling by the Gauteng Division of the High Court in Pretoria. South Africa's appeals court ruled the Department of Tourism's focus on only black businesses for payouts to overcome the coronavirus pandemic as unlawful. The Bloemfontein-based court said that the Minister of Tourism committed an error and is not legally obliged to allocate funds based on black economic empowerment requirements. Labour Union Solidarity and civil rights group AfriForum earlier successfully applied for a freeze on the Tourism Equity Fund because it only focused on black business. The application by the attorney of Western Cape Judge President John Hlope to have a judge from a division other than that of Gauteng hear his application to have the decision by the JSC to impeach him set aside was rejected on Wednesday by Deputy Judge President of the Gauteng Division, Roland Sutherland. The presidency has informed the court that it has not received an application from the JSC for Hlope's suspension and the JSC has indicated that it will not submit one pending the outcome of the case. Justin, I see in the markets, very yo-yo. I know Magnus speaks about the volatility, but how are they looking today? Lots of volatility, Stu, but the JSE All Share Index is up at 63,500. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 80 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 15 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 35 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,774 an ounce. Krugerrand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is firmer, trading at $75.80 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 620,000 rand. In the financial news, Sasol, South Africa's second biggest producer of greenhouse gases, set a target of cutting its emissions of climate warming pollutants by 30% by 2030 and said it aims to have a net zero emissions by 2050. The target is an improvement on a previous aim of reducing emissions by 10% by 2030 and comes as South Africa and its most polluting companies come under increasing pressure to transition away from coal. Sasol produces about a fifth of South Africa's greenhouse gases today, but plans to gradually move away from using coal to produce chemicals and motor fuels, shifting to natural gas instead. Beyond 2030, it intends to use green hydrogen and sustainable carbon. Investment holding company Remgro's performance has begun recovering following a tough 2020 dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic. In its annual results for the year ended 30 June 2021, the 
Group said its headline earnings from continuing operations saw a 66% jump to 2.8 billion rand. Remgro, which is chaired and controlled by Hun Rupert, attributed the increase to improved performance of most of its investing companies, including RCL Foods, Distel, Total Energies, and Rand Merchant Investments. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, September 22nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. Uber delighted investors with a forecast that it will actually, for the first time ever, be profitable. And the European Commission may withhold critical funds from Poland and Hungary amid its dispute over human rights issues. Plus, we'll talk to our Middle East editor, Andrew England, about how Gulf states are navigating relations with two superpowers. Some years ago, both the UAE and Saudi Arabia wanted to buy armed drones from the US. They couldn't do that. So where do they go? They turn to China. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The European Union is considering withholding funds from Poland and Hungary amid a dispute over human rights issues in those two member states. These funds are aimed at evening out economic disparities across the EU. But Warsaw and Budapest are currently at odds with Brussels over rule of law issues, including allegations of discrimination. The European Commission recently wrote to several regional authorities in Poland. It said it was suspending certain funds after their decision to create areas that ban LGBTQ people. The EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights is now part of budget legislation, and officials have to check for compliance before releasing funds. One EU diplomat said if Brussels were to withhold regional aid, it would be crossing a Rubicon. It took more than a decade and billions of dollars, but Uber could post its first profitable quarter. The ride-hailing group on Tuesday projected that adjusted gross bookings in the current quarter would come in at around $23 billion. Investors were thrilled. Uber's stock price shot up 11.5% yesterday. The FT's Dave Lee says many people doubted Uber would ever turn a profit. I mean, it was, uh, you know, a company that was in its early stages heavily subsidizing rides in order to get people in the cars. And indeed, you know, since its founding in 2009, this is a company that spent $22.1 billion and just, you know, plowed that cash into, into getting getting to where it is today. And many people thought that the, the sums would never add up. You know, you'd never be able to do rides at a price that consumers wanted and also, you know, pay drivers enough and, 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 and turn a profit. And that's something they'd promised investors would happen. They said it was going to happen by the end of this year. And so they've come in one quarter early, it seems. So this sounds great, Dave, but does this profitability, you know, look sustainable? Well, the first thing, uh, first and foremost is to keep doing this. I mean, they said to expect the same in, in Q4. The question is next year, you know, to what degree their food business continues to be elevated as it is right now. And also to what extent they have to pay for other things like making sure they don't have driver shortages, which is another problem they've got right now. So there are a few kind of question marks over parts of their business that could see, uh, that sort of profitability fluctuate. Now, where, where do you see the growth coming from, Dave? Well, I think the, the, the food delivery business and I guess the wider delivery business, that's where a lot of growth is going to be seen for Uber. So it's going to be grocery delivery. It's going to be 
alcohol delivery is another big area. Um, so I think, you know, Uber has to diversify its business, but in a way that keeps that profitability. And that's something they haven't had to do so much in the past. I mean, you'll remember, Mark, you know, they've had flying cars, they've had uh, self-driving cars, you know, they've had all these, all these projects that many of them were a kind of hangover from the Travis Kalanick days. But now any future growth has to be quite sensible growth. And that, to be fair, is what Dara Kozushahi, the CEO, is is known for. And I think, you know, between him reaching this milestone, having trimmed Uber's business down, as well as cleaning up the general mess that Travis Kalanick left of Uber, that's that's going to be seen as a considerable achievement for Kozushahi. The question now is whether he has the ideas to, to grow Uber um, further in 2022 and, and beyond. Dave Lee covers Uber for the Financial Times. Gulf Arab states have been close partners with the U.S. for years. They've invested in American assets and weaponry and taken part in U.S.-led military operations around the world. But when Gulf states can't get what they need from the U.S., they have another partner to turn to. You know, go back some years ago, both the UAE and Saudi Arabia wanted to buy armed drones from the US. And they couldn't do that. So where do they go? They turn to China. Andrew England is the FT's Middle East editor, and he says over the years, the Gulf's Arab states have shifted towards China. There was always sort of this compact where the Gulf countries supply oil, help uh, sustain global energy stability, and the US would be kind of the security guarantor for these relatively young states. Um, and there's a sense now that that compact is being weakened. The US uh, is looking to withdraw from the region, pull down its military assets from the region and get out of you know forever conflicts. Um, and that kind of shaped the thinking uh, of Gulf states. Is, is the US the reliable partner? I mean, this has been happening at the same time as economic relations with Asian powers, particularly China, India, have been growing. So when it comes to the U.S. role in the Middle East, Andrew, how big of a shift are we talking about here? At the moment, China is not going to replace and isn't replacing the U.S. as as a security power in the region. It's more about the Gulf states looking to balance their relationships, to manage their regional and international relations. And if they think they can rely less on the U.S. and China as becoming this growing economic power, the biggest buyer of Gulf oil, and a source of the technologies, the artificial intelligence that the Gulf states want, then they're going to strengthen their relationships with China. It's kind of a natural progression in a way. And a lot of it's pragmatic. It's driven by economics. It's driven by what China can produce. And I'm there again, I'm talking about technology. I'm talking about renewable energy. I'm talking about artificial intelligence, these kind of things. So on the one hand, they're now the biggest buyer of Gulf oil. On the other hand, they're producing things that the Gulf states wants. And they're providing them without conditionalities, without questions. So how worried is the U.S. or, you know, what does the U.S. worry about as Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, continue to build their ties with China? Well, what it is, is the U.S. is worried about its partners in the region and elsewhere, whether it's the U.K., whether it's Israel, whether it's the UAE, using Chinese technology, which they fe fear could be used 
uh, in a negative way against the US, whether, I don't know, it's getting hold of information about sensitive US technology or security or military um, uh, military technology, those kind of things. They're kind of worried that if, if this relationship deepens, then countries that they've partnered with, countries where they have bases, countries where they sell their military equipment, that suddenly becomes vulnerable to the Chinese being able to tap into it and get hold of or, or, or infiltrate US technology deployed in the Gulf states. Now, do Gulf countries ever feel like they're in an awkward position, like they have to choose between the US and China? Or do they you know, see themselves as being able to work with both superpower, superpowers? I think Ultimately, that's what they want to do. They, they want to straddle that line. They want to work with both. They don't want to have to make a choice between one or the other. Um, the UAE is now going to be taking up a seat on the UN Security Council in January uh, for a five-year period. Emirati officials are aware that they're going to be caught between two of the big permanent members, the US and the China, on that Security Council, whether it's over human rights issues or other things. So, yeah, it's, it's added a kind of a layer of strain to the relationship with Washington while at the same time, the UAE and Saudi Arabia particularly, there's no way they can't do business with China. China is such an important buyer of their oil. It's become the key trading partner for the countries. And not just in oil, but in terms of the imports that are going into Saudi Arabia or the UAE. So they're trying to navigate their way through this you know, hostility between China and the US and maintain relations with both. And it's a, it's a tricky route to navigate. Andrew England is the FT's Middle East editor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Bronwyn Nielsen for Business TV and with me now is Magnus Haystack from Braintoast Wealth. Magnus, good to be chatting to you today. Well, everybody is watching Evergrande and we're seeing a sell-off across the board. Is this something that you are concerned about? Yes, good afternoon, Bronwyn. It's not only Evergrande, it's the whole, the whole political thing in China, which, is, which has been roiling markets for a couple of months now. And it's very hard as a Westerner or a Western capitalist to try and figure out what the game plan is. But it's very, very evident that it's hurting uh, specific sectors, specific companies, tech stocks, NASPERS, process, etc. And I have got this uh, Evergrande thing that's smashing our, our commodity stocks and especially our iron ore uh, producers and, and also platinum. So... Welcome to the markets. Never a dull day, as you should know. So are we looking at potentially the best buying opportunity post a shakeup because asset prices across the board are coming off and that perhaps they needed to come off? You know, they, if, if you're asking me about the South African um, commodity stocks, I mean, I was always very reluctant to get involved because of the volatility. But I must say that this time around, the volatility was unbelievable. I mean, it, it was in, in April that all these indices were at record highs, you know, boosting market cap, boosting tax revenue. And four months later, not even four months later, you know, they're down to where they were two years ago. That's been a very, very volatile period. Whether it's a buying time, I'm not so sure. We need to watch China more carefully 
<clears throat> I've got a suspicion that there's going to be some more bad news out of China, and therefore still uh, time to be sitting on the sidelines. You might be buying back some stock at, at much lower levels. Magnus, you are a big proponent of having your money offshore and um, and staying away basically from the South African landscape. Given the current environment, and, and we touched on it just a moment ago in the conversation, looking at potential dips offshore to accumulate, would you look to position yourself from that perspective right now? As far as equities are concerned, that would be correct to summarize that we've been finding better alternatives for growth investors elsewhere in the world for a very long period of time. But I must counter that also by saying for, for investors looking for yield, uh, South Africa has been a phenomenal place with your cash yields, anything between 7 and 11% over the last 5, 7, and even 10 years. In fact, I did some analysis yesterday, which is quite worrying if you're an equity investor in South Africa, that over the last eight years, the um, money market or you know things like enhanced incomes have beaten the uh, all of the SA equity funds over an eight-year period of time. And that is very, very unusual. And it, 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 it can continue in further. So yield has given, you, you, if you want to yield, South Africa was the place to be. Bonds, enhanced income funds, even money market funds have been fantastic. Regrettably, the for longer-term economic growth, you had to go elsewhere. And there have been fantastic developments all over the world. But to answer your question, is it time to start going back into the market? I've never been a great market timer. I tell that to people. There are much smarter people out there making those calls. I would rather spend my time getting your asset allocation right and, and let the fund managers make the call. Rather buy the stocks in a good company because you're not going to be selling in and out. And so I don't know. It's, it's cheaper than a month ago. It can go cheaper, but we will never get the timing right because you also have the added volatility of the currency which comes into play. You're not going to get it right both on the currency and the market. Forget about it. You would still, as you said, be looking to the South African market to uh, extrapolate or to capitalize on yield because you, you made that comment that the trend is set to continue, correct? Yes, Yes, very much so. I, I think that I, I, I disagree with the bullish, the bullish uh, uh, comments from our South African asset uh, managers uh, who, who seem to be perpetually or perennially uh, bullish on the SA markets. And I, I don't see the same picture. I see the macroeconomic backdrop as usually negative for the market. Um, consumer consumption expenditure flat, non-existent. Consumer confidence is flat business confidence. Our manufacturing is disappearing. So I, 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 I think that some fund managers are trying to ignore the very, very negative macroeconomic environment uh, when it comes to their forecasts. So why would I maybe try and get some extra growth in the local market that comes along with very, very high risks? I would rather go and find it in Japan. Europe is looking good. Many sectors, Netherlands, Austria, delivering fantastic returns. Why would you confine yourself to one country with massive political and economic situations? 
I've never had the opportunity to talk to you about cryptocurrency. Now, the other headlines that are doing the rounds right now, we we are seeing um, Bitcoin tracking at around $40,000, which has come off significantly. We've got all sorts of experts saying that we're going to see 20% off the the crypto market at this stage. Solana is down. Uh, Is this a space that you look to, Magnus, at, at all, or is crypto tantamount to a swear word in your book? I, I haven't got a view on crypto. I would not invest in it myself. I would not recommend my clients to invest in it. I've got some of the younger staff members with a lot of degrees behind their name. They swear blind, this is the future. They have yet to convince me that it has intrinsic value as, as an investment instrument. And I, I, I just don't see where the real value is in a cryptocurrency so I'm, I'm, I'm part of the old generation. I don't see it. I don't understand it. And I don't recommend it. Magnus, as you've said, you, you don't hold crypto in high regard yourself. But if we are looking at a global shakeup, is gold something that you would consider, given the historic safe haven status that we've seen in the yellow metal and the fact that it behaves in times like this um, in a very different manner to the general uh, commodity space? I think if I had to make a choice between crypto and gold, I would go for gold. I think there's just too too much that we don't know about the crypto market in all its mutations that's, that have come over the last couple of years. I don't think anybody really knows what consumers will do or investors will do when there is a shake-up in the market. Will they head for the hit? Buy more? If I had to choose, I would choose gold about Bitcoin. And the theme of health stocks at the moment, given the, obviously, the the focus on on vaccinations, um, on longevity, on on coming through COVID-19, pharmaceutical stocks that have benefited from from the vaccine, would you be looking at the health space at the moment? Yes, it have been for a very long time and even more so now, very bullish on the healthcare stock, the healthcare ETFs that we've been using have, have, have returned over a year period 100% in dollar terms. So we think that is one of the mega trends that will make people wealthy if they stick to their plan. There's fantastic stuff happening in that space. We've seen what uh, Mahta Vusaka has done with SI via Signia. Their Bravos fund that they've launched, there's been some spin-offs that's already listed on the Mastec, Vasitech, and we've seen Moderna, BioNTech. People have made fortunes of money. We don't talk about it in South Africa because it bypassed the South African investment. But, but the investors in the United States, Germany, and other places have made absolute fortunes in healthcare, and we're still finding lots of potential in that sector. Well, that's important. Are you still finding lots of potential? Because you don't want to be advocating in favor of healthcare now if the party is over. You reckon there's still a lot we, of ground we, to go? We, we find, we think, I personally have invested heavily in that sector, increased my exposure. We've taken our clients along with us. We think this is a, a very, very long term uh, trend and a very powerful trend that you need to participate in. Healthcare is, is the new, almost the new gold sector in, in many respects with discoveries and inventions and vaccinations and treatments coming out. I mean, if you follow that sector, 
in greater depth. You'll be amazed at is what coming our way and what's going to be happening. And I'd like to be part of that growth curve. So you mentioned the ETFs in the healthcare space and individual stocks. Would you generally diversify between the ETFs and individual players? Yes, I would, I, would, I would use a combination of the two. I would choose a very good healthcare fund as my, my, my core approach. And then depending on the ETFs and where they are, I would, I would have satellite ETFs for the fund and, and see what you can do. They tend to run very quickly. You've got to be very nimble. But I would leave most of the money in the healthcare funds where they do the research and buy and sell depending on their signals. But there's a tremendous amount of money has been made in the healthcare stocks, um, ETFs, and also the demographic funds that are aligned to the health, healthcare trend. So there's some very exciting stuff uh, going to be happening in the next five to, to ten years, in my view. Talking about exciting stuff, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on the technology stocks in the U.S. We've seen the, the tech stocks coming under pressure, uh, the theme of corporate sa- uh, corporate taxes really at play there. Is this a buying opportunity given, I mean, these tech stocks have run hard with our digital reality globally over the last 18 months, and obviously they have been the forerunners. Do you think there's potential to see further upside in, in the tech sector and, and maybe looking into any pullback, given this worry over corporate taxes in the U.S., as an opportunity to get into that theme? I think so. I mean, I've been a tech bull for 10, 11 years. Um, our clients have made a lot of money. And it's ironic that as the tech boom started, South Africa cancelled its only tech fund. We had a small tech fund that we used to have, and that was closed down because there was no interest. Meanwhile, the United States and Silicon Valley had one of the biggest bull markets in a category ever in history. So those have made a huge amounts of money. And the tech sector, which is now about 28% of the U.S. market, has changed our lives and is changing our lives and will continue to do so. So you as a South African investor, you need to get into tech stocks because you use those products every day. And then the speed at which the tech sector has changed the world in the last 10 has bypassed most South African investors. They just didn't see it. It didn't happen. And they, as a result, got left behind. If you compare them to their equivalent middle American investor, who's been heavily invested in tech stocks and become very wealthy over a period of time. And then, Magnus, just finally, as we mentioned earlier in our discussion, FOMC meeting now, we're expecting minutes from that meeting and and watching closely for any signs of uh, tapering being brought forward by the U.S. Federal Reserve. But we've got the South African Reserve Bank meeting tomorrow on the 23rd of September with regards to its own decision on interest rates. Are you expecting any surprises on that front? Not from the South African guys, no. It's going to be... I mean, our inflation came out this morning, almost 5%. They cannot increase interest rates considering the poor economic situation. So tea drinking session and on we go. We're not going to be pushing up interest rates while we don't know what the federal, uh, the FOMC will be doing. So no, I would rather be watching what's happening in Washington with interest rates and the dot plot plan, as they call it.
So, Magnus, we've covered a, a lot of ground in this session. Is there anything that is on your mind that I have not spoken about right now that is pertinent to our discussion on the general market environment? Everybody t seems to think it's a binary decision, either South Africa or the USA. You need to look at places like Japan, which has suddenly come alive with the change in political leadership there. We've been putting more money into Japan, Japan quietly been bubbling under not a lot of media coverage in South Africa. We don't speak much Japanese. So we don't have any Japanese fund managers telling us what's happening. But I would, as, a, as, 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 as some general advice, go and sniff around the Japanese market and, and maybe capital to Japan. You could, you could do quite well. Magnus, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much for your time. Magnus Haystack, Brenthurst Wealth. This is Business, Business News TV, and I'm Bronwyn Nielsen. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Neville Williams, Chief Financial Officer of investment holding company Remgro. Neville, there's so much to touch on. Lots happening within the Remgro stable, both in the listed and unlisted space. Let's start with one of the laggards in the portfolio that happens to be Remgro's largest constituent, that's MediClinic. Ironically, hospital groups have been one of the industries worst affected by the pandemic as a result of the higher margin elective surgery restrictions. Has there been some improvement there as the pandemic restrictions have started to ease slowly? Yes, uh, Justin, for sure. If, if you look at um, uh, MediClinic's results to Remgro's um, headline earnings this year, um, maybe just I can explain. There is a lag. We um, equity account MediClinic's results for the year, April 2020 to 31st March 2021. And you can uh, uh, imagine the full impact of that uh, restrictive lockdown measures from April 2020 uh, due to the COVID pandemic um, is included in the current year's MediClinic Medi results. And since, since April, with the lifting, uh, gradual lifting of restrictions, uh, MediClinic um, has also uh, 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 improved their results and operations. So uh, in South Africa, they were severely hit in that first few months of um, the COVID lockdown. Uh, but uh, the, the other divisions, like in Switzerland and the Middle, Middle East, were actually not that se se severely hit. And they um, are already recovering back to pre-COVID levels where they actually can uh, 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 institute non-elective surgery. Uh, in South Africa, non-elective surgery is actually gradually coming back uh, and uh, with improved uh, uh, margins at, in MediClinic South Africa's results. Neville, another investee company that's listed, Distel, they're subject to a buyout offer from beverage giant Heineken. Given the cautionary announcement and Remgro's significant holding in Distel, I understand there's limited information you can shed on that. But for the purposes of the question, if the transaction does pass, what would Remgro use the 10 billion rand plus proceeds for? 
Yeah, as as you said, unfortunately, we are under under a cautionary, um, as the still has also announced a week or, or two ago that they still in negotiations with AB InBev, and uh, hopefully we will get an announcement uh, within the next week or, or two. Uh, so if if I uh, talk uh, any more about this deal, uh, I can land up in jail. Sorry for that, uh, Dustin. I'm not looking to get you in any travel, Neville. <laughs> Uh, but more interesting corporate action at RMI, where discovery and momentum are being unbundled to shareholders. Market loved it, with RMI up nearly 20% since Monday. I assume Remgro had significant influence over the new streamlined PNC insurance model, with Outsurance and Hastings being the main two constituents going forward for RMI. Yes, and the Remgro board has actually given it its in-principle support for, for this uh, uh, deal. Um, we, uh, we, uh, support the RMI strategy going for, forward, uh, uh, after the unbundling of the long-term insurance assets. But you remember if, uh, when the deal is implemented in quarter two, 2022, Remgro will also receive the direct interest in discovery and, and MMH in his, uh, portfolio. Uh, so, so we uh, are still supportive of the short-term as well as the long-term in- insurance industry. And um, as you can see, the market actually uh, uh, reacted very positive to, to that announcement. Neville, I was talking to financial services analyst Koki Koyman the other day. He called Remgro Visionaries, a company that moves with the times. Is that what we're seeing from Remgro, slowly moving out of traditional banking industries into more technology growth companies with further investment in groups such as CRBH? Yeah, I, I mean, and, and that's that's also um, a, a strategy that, that our CEO, Yanni Durant, has um, already announced uh, to, to the market, looking at the portfolio optimization of, of our underlying in, investing companies. So, so we will focus on, um, say, uh, turnaround assets in, in, in the bucket, growth assets like CIVH, as well as cash uh, generating as assets for uh, sources, sources of capital. So, so that's, that is part of the rebalancing of, of our portfolio. Um, and I mean, if you look at the underlying companies, um, they are very resilient and were very resilient during the, the last year, during the COVID period. And um, if you look at the results, um, excluding MediClinic, um, the rest of the portfolio actually um, improved uh, and are on a recovery path uh, 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 subsequent to last year's uh, worst ever results in uh, the Remgro's history. CIVH's two main constituents, Dark Fiber Africa and Vamital, are definitely seen by the market as the two most exciting avenues of growth for Remgro. What has trading been like within the space? Oh yes, this, this this is the focus. This is our growth um, uh, portfolio. And if if you look at um, the uh, Vumatel um, uh, results for the last year, their revenue actually increased by uh, around fifty percent. Um, there's um, economies of scale, so their operating profit also increased uh, by more than more than sixty percent. And that's because of um, accumulated um, subscriber growth uptake, as well as further net network um, ex- expansion. So um, on a growth uh, path, and um, if you look at um, what uh, the investment executive Peter Ace has actually told the market this morning, is that um, we hope 
to be profitable on a headline earnings basis in CIVH in 2023-24 financial year. Investment holding companies have a perennial problem of trading at large discounts to its net asset value. Remgro's discount to NAV was unchanged at 35%. What are management looking to do to reduce this discount? So we uh, management can only focus on what we have under control. We we don't control the discount. It's uh, I think it's the shareholders um, and the market that actually view and control the, the, the discount. But we will focus on um, growing our underlying investment portfolio on an earnings basis, a, a cash earnings basis, as well as an INAF uh, accretive basis. So so that's that's what we focus on. And hopefully the market will see the underlying value and value creation ability of management uh, um, going forward. Lastly, Neville, reading through the results this morning, there's lots of mention of a big ESG drive. It seems more of a tick box exercise for companies these days, given its qualitative characteristics. How does Remgro measure its ESG progress or performance? So um, ESG is actually a focus point uh, uh, for this year. And we've also included in our um, share schemes, uh, the key performance indicators, also an ESG component. So so ESG is um, at the forefront uh, of Remgro as, as well as the portfolio companies. And uh, for sure, I think it's the right thing to do in this day and age. And, and we will follow um, this approach and it will also be part of our management performance evaluation process going forward. I'm Joshua Roberts of BizNews, and you've been listening to Remgro's Chief Financial Officer, Neville Williams. With me now is Outlet Parliamentary and Energy Advisor, Liz McDade. Liz, thank you very much for your time. We're going to start with uh, nurses' reasons for approving car power ships generation licenses. This happened yesterday, um, and Alta has obviously uh, put forward an argument that they would like further clarity on the awarding of these emergency generation licenses to the controversial car power ship. Can you give me a sense of where you stand with this and how NERSA is responding? Well, we haven't heard anything about how NERSA is responding, except that it's seems to be simply saying it's going to provide reasons. And this is obviously the critical issue, is until we hear the reasons, we can't decide on the next steps. But um, we are obviously concerned that um, NERSA is taking this step. The Department of, of Mineral Resources and Energy under Gwede Matashe, this must be part of a broader master plan from, from his um, desk have you got any commentary on the minister himself? Um, well, we do believe that the minister is not uh, pushing um, energy in the right direction from a future perspective. We know that the future is renewable energy, and um, well, that's what we would like to see any energy minister promoting. So let's now come to the issue around the National Nuclear Regulator and the transparency that you as ARTA are calling for, given the uh, issues where uh, Eskom is now trying to extend the lifespan of Kuburg. 
Um, this you are calling into question. Uh, obviously, decommissioning the plant, you have also put on the table, would uh, cost between 34 um, million and 64 million versus the 16.2 uh, billion, apologies, 16.2 billion to decommission Kuberg is what Eskom is tabling, but you're saying it's 42 to 64 billion would be required to decommission the plant. Well, what happened is that we tried to ascertain from ESCOM is what have they put aside. And it turns out that what they've put aside, firstly, is very small, the numbers you gave, but also is only on paper. So we know that ESCOM is in debt. So, which means that it's, when it comes, if we needed to close Kuburg now, if we needed to decommission, there would be no money. And back to the fiscus, um, uh, ESCOM would come. And so the, the and and part of the issue is that ESCOM is now proposing, and the DMRE is backing this, that they extend Kuburg for another twenty years. And this is a plant that was built in the nineteen seventies. And we as Alta and the public only found about out about this recently, almost by accident, um, when we asked. So there was no public transparency. There was nothing from the National Nuclear Regulator who had the application to say, we've got this application here, public, we're considering it, you have a look, um, no transparency. And so we are welcoming the fact that the Department of Mineral Energy is wanting to amend the National Nuclear Regulator Act. And one of our strong points is that it must become more transparent. It cannot be mired in the secrecy of the past. We know that the nuclear is an apartheid legacy, but it's now, it has to stop. We have to get into a more transparent world. I mean, Liz, ultimately, as Arthur, you're saying, you are wanting to prevent South Africa experiencing a nuclear disaster. Mm. And this is why you are calling for the transparency. Do you believe that the, the nuclear, the national nuclear regulator um, does have the appropriate regulation, world-class regulation to, to proceed with overseeing the sector? Well, we have to ask questions about it because they seem to be operating a little bit in the dark. Um, it's difficult for us to know. But what we can say is that the, we need a strong national nuclear regulator because nuclear material doesn't go away overnight. It's here for, for hundreds of thousands of years. So for future generations and for the current generation. We need a strong national nuclear regulator. And what we are also saying is that that needs to be financed properly. We cannot have the situation as we have in other mining sectors, for example, where you have ownerless mines that are just floating around and when it comes to rehabilitation, there's no money. So when you come to a nuclear site, you can't suddenly turn around and go, well, there's no money. Sorry, guys. So... We, we really um, need a strong regulator and we need one that's backed by um, you know, a, a solid treasury backing or the DMRE must allocate sufficient resources. So, so, so let's just talk a bit more, uh, Liz, about Kuberg itself. As, as you said, it was really by accident that you found out that there is now a plan to extend Kuberg's life um, another 20 years you state this was obviously um, constructed in the 90s. And um, for you, 
is is it viable that you could potentially extend the life? And when we're looking at a plant that is supposed to be decommissioned in 2024. Yes, so obviously every power plant is built with a fixed life or a sort of planned life. And any extension beyond that, it's like having an old car. You need to spend more and more on maintenance. What is not transparent is whether the more and more on maintenance is actually now going to be so much that it would be better to actually close it and for ESCOM to invest that money in a different kind of power, power generation. And in terms of the minister, um, his push, in terms of a, a nuclear power build, are you finding you have access to the minister? Are they listening to you as uh, one of the bodies that are outraged by the fact that we're not seeing any transparency in communication around Kuburg itself? Well, we have started off the process by requesting um, information around, like, the costing. Like, so, and, and we have therefore raised it in the press. What we are also asking is that all the information, all the information that went to the DMRE, please could that be give, made public? And timelines, have you put any timelines in terms of, of the request? Well, it's a PIA request, which means they have 30 days. And if they really want to, they can extend it another 30 days. But we are then looking to potentially go to court to get that information. We believe it's in the public interest. And, and ALTA is about ensuring transparent and accountable governance. I think it's very important just to to labor the point here on on the costing. So I want to go back to that number. In terms of decommissioning a plant, Alta is saying that you would need between 42 and 64 billion rand to decommission a plant. And uh, as per the statement that I've seen from Alta, Eskom has available around about 16.2 billion rand to decommission Kuburg. Now, one would assume that extending the life of a plant beyond 2024, which is now the intention, as you say, is going to cost a lot more than decommissioning the plant, which, as you say, is 42 to 64 billion rand. Am I on the money there? Exactly. So that's where we focus now. Well, already, if we are going to extend Kuburg, they must have somebody must have put the money aside, and if not, why not? Are we going to see another Kusile Madupi style thing where the costs expand and increase, um, and and we we suddenly find that we pay bit by bit by bit, they just go up and up and up. The the, the actual maintenance and the build is delayed and delayed and delayed, and in the end, we as the public are paying masses for something that actually we could have used that money somewhere else. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. This is Lena Fontova, Kubez News. London is a city world-renowned for its architecture with hundreds of great buildings like the Houses of Parliament and St. Paul's Cathedral. In recent years, more modern architecture like Norman Foster's Gherkin have been changing the skyline. 
In the European summer, the city celebrates modern architecture with an annual commission of a pavilion in the ground of the Serpentine Gallery. An internationally famous architect is chosen for the design. This year, an architect from Johannesburg was chosen. She is Sumaya Valley from the Counter Space Studio. This is not the only honor bestowed on this young woman from Josie. She has been featured on Time Magazine's 2021 Best 100 list as the most influential architect who is shaping and defining the next generation of leadership. But despite the international accolades, Valley told Biz News, she remains committed to Johannesburg, where she sees potential beyond deterioration and challenge. Just to explain a little bit about the commission. Historically, it's been awarded to the most iconic architect of the time, but more recently, there's been a focus towards emerging voices in the field. And we were invited to make a submission, and then it was selected very luckily. So, but then the pandemic came, as it was supposed to be in 2020. So, how did that affect you? I moved to London when I got the commission. I was here from December 2019. until March 2020. If I'm very honest, the pandemic has deepened the message of the project much more so. The design wasn't affected per se because it was already submitted to planning and so on, but I was able to deepen the project in that it grew many other tentacles and in response to the pandemic I also initiated a program at the Serpentine called Support Structures for Support Structures. reflecting on what engagement with these community and partner institutions that I wanted to work with in London could be and what it yeah what it looked like um in that time what inspired you what does it look like just give us an idea of your installation there so i was inspired by waves of migration in london and i really wanted to tell a story about london for london and being from south africa of course Johannesburg my city is also a city that's so intertwined and connected to movement and to identities of people from so many different places we have so many different forms of public i wanted to also read something about london that's perhaps sitting beneath the surface of general architectural lexicon and discourse and so i became interested in particular in how people find ways to construct belonging when they move to london and so i i started to work with some of the first mosques churches african churches synagogues um some of the first marketplaces to hold traditional ingredients or cinema where someone could hear something in their mother tongue some of the first publishing houses uh, the west indian gazette or the calypsos where people could get news from home and so many of these spaces also started to birth movements of resistance like the mangrove in Notting Hill became the headquarters for the Notting Hill Carnival of course also so many resonances with South Africa you know I, I worked with the Brixton Rex steps where Mandela stood to honor the people of Brixton who supported him and of course we know that London in particular has so much resonance with the anti-apartheid struggle at home I started to work with mapping these places and in particular I was interested in the gestures of architectural generosity in each of them so how they were able to hold people in a gathering 
for example, the way that porch steps were used in Brixton for people to organize before the time of protest or how an unfolded surface in the street can become a place for people to gather and share a meal. And what we see in the pavilion is these forms coming together. They've been abstracted, um, but I wanted to reflect this coming together of London in all of these different parts. And so the form of the pavilion is also articulated like that. It's almost like a reverse ruin that has these transfers from all of these different places. And it's fragmented into slightly different color gradients also. So it also starts to articulate like a piecing together of lots of different places. At the same time, I also wanted it to be a coherent experience. And so, of course, there are these small islands of gathering for small intimate gatherings, but they also all face onto each other. And it's symbolically about a larger coming together. The only thing that really struck me when I was there is thinking that it, this is not a permanent structure. This is something that you erect and then it gets demolished afterwards. How does that feel? It's a very joyful thing to have been able to, to realize it and to make it. And um, I'm just so grateful that in the process of making this, this building, that there have been so many voices that have been able to come together and share in it in some way, not just in the physical realization, but also all of the other aspects of the project. Well, can we just go back to your background? Why did you become an architect? What inspired you? I don't know if one ever knows, really, but I, I think I've always been very interested in, in the city and very interested in design. When I was young, I was always very interested uh, in stories, in writing. I was interested in politics And in history, I also, I think I really wanted to be an archaeologist at some point as well. I applied for architecture and for journalism. And I chose architecture for my love of design. But I think that, well, I hope that I still hold an attitude towards telling stories through building and through design. You have spoken about your commitment to Johannesburg. How can the city be renewed and revived? There are a lot of challenges in Johannesburg and in so many of our cities and landscapes in South Africa. Of course, we live with the inherited challenges of segregation and social and racial and economic injustice that are still so present and even deepening in some aspects in our landscapes. But I, I think that at the same time, there's so much in Johannesburg. There's so much potential. There's so much opportunity And in the ways in which people have shown resilience in constructing the city and in inhabiting the city, in our own traditions, in our rituals, in ways that people come together, in our you know economic systems in the city, the informal or the rogue, so to speak. I think there's so much inspiration to find in looking in those places. And I think that If we look deeply at what our city is and we respond deeply to what it could be from by looking in those places, there's, there's so much that we can do. I think instead of thinking about this idea of deterioration or challenge and then looking at it with a Western gaze in, in, you know, in, in terms of looking northward or to solutions that might not necessarily fit our context. There's so much richness and texture in what we have at home. And I, and I think to be able to imagine from that place is, could be very powerful. 
Do you think it's time to develop buildings that are more suited to Africa in the regeneration of Johannesburg? Absolutely, absolutely. I think my my practice is focused on searching for what design languages for Johannesburg and for the continent can be and can look like and how they can reflect our cities, our identities, um, because they're so, even conceptually, of course, I think it's deeply challenging and it's a huge weight and a responsibility to hold that. But at the same time, there's also so much conceptual richness in looking at our ways of being. So absolutely. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. Well, that's it for the show today. We'll see you same time tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.